in the final scene of the 1981 film Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, confronts the Nazis as they are about to open up the Ark of the Covenant, hoping to harness that supernatural power for their own world domination. Indy's friend tells him, whoever possesses the Ark is invincible. As the Ark is opened, there's a powerful force that's unleashed that results in the demise of these Nazi soldiers in a spectacular and terrifying manner. In one of the most memorable scenes, Indy's nemesis throughout the movie, the Third Reich Gestapo, Arnold Tott, actually has his face melt off down to the bone when he looks into the Ark. If you've seen the movie, you sure that was a striking moment. The only thing that keeps Indy and his love interest Marion from surviving is that they close their eyes. They don't look at the, the wrath of this powerful force that was emanating from the Ark. And in the movie's epilogue, the Ark is the property, becomes the property of the U.S. government, and it's stored away and created in a large warehouse that contains thousands of other relics and curiosities and spoils of war. Now, of course, the movie is science fiction, but the idea of the power of the Ark and the prohibition of looking into the Ark are true and scriptural. In chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel, we have this single drama that occurs, and the central character is the Ark of the Covenant. The story is in the form of a lengthy chiasm, Basically, everything that is begins and is introduced in chapter 4 is resolved in chapter 7. So the ark is lost in chapter 4. It's returned in chapter 7. And thus, the title of the sermon is appropriately Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, only this story, as supernatural and dramatic as the movie was, this is true, not science fiction. Uh, we left off our exposition First uh, Samuel last time at the end of chapter 4 with the rather bleak cliffhanger ending. Remember, the nation of Israel was devastated from this double defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Eli's sons are killed in battle. The ark is captured. And the result of the ark being captured, Eli dies, the priest, and it resulted in the premature birth of the grandson of Eli, Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. So with no ark, no leader, no glory, it seemed as though Israel was defeated and Yahweh is essentially handed over to the enemy. And I ask you to imagine the, the, the newspaper headlines or the clickbait. Yahweh in exile. God is dead. Finally defeated. Yahweh sleeps with the fishes. But, as we're all going to see, this supposition of Yahweh's death was exaggerated. And not only is he very much alive, but he is powerful in judgment. God, as we will see, will remain undefeated. Though the events leading up to this appear grim and dark and death looms, as has been preached, remember, Sunday's coming. Chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel uh, narrate an unusual and at times even comical story of the Ark of the Covenant 
when it's taken into exile in Philistia. The narrative tells of the superstitious religion of the Philistine nation, as well as their regional deity, Dagon, believed to have been the fish god. Uh, let's look at the story and the first five verses of chapter 5. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 say, When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod was a city in northern Philistia. The Philistines, verse 2, took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. So the stage is set in this corner, Yahweh, the defeated God, represented by the ark, and in this corner, a statue of Dagon, the victorious god in their eyes, the hometown favorite on his home turf. And the first blow is thrown in verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So Dagon goes down. And the position would indicate that he's like bowing before Yahweh. Philistines come in, they're unfazed by this. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Now, it's interesting, Dagon needs the help of man. Dagon can't stand up on his own, whereas Yahweh, as we're going to find out at the end of this story, is the helper of his people. So Dagon needs help, Yahweh is help. In the basic theology of paganism, their gods need assistance. Their gods need our help. They depend on man to sustain them. In Buddhism, for instance, it's meritorious to bring the idols food that they can eat. And they can't, they're going to starve unless people bring them their meal. But we need to beware of our own version of a paganized Christianity that paints Yahweh in the image of Dagon as if God is someone who needs our help. I get weary sometimes of some of the modern songs, even some of the old songs and hymns, uh, or sermons that suggest that we're going to accomplish God's work for him. I get weary of those things. He has no hands but our hands. Or, or that God is just waiting for us to reach the unreached people so that he can return I think we need to be careful about these kinds of ideas. Yahweh is not like the idols. He relies on no one. He needs no helper. Yahweh is supreme and self-sustaining. Our text today demonstrates this over and over. You're going to see this keep coming up. Now the knockout blow, verse 4. And when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. It was not enough that Dagon bow before Yahweh. Now he is rendered headless, helpless, no hands, just a trunk. Now, how might you expect the Philistines to respond to this? Now, this is, the, this is not a coincidence. Second day they come in now. You expect them to repent, right? Well, I mean, Yahweh is more powerful than their false deity. Here's their false deities. Hands are cut off. No, they don't. They just come up with another silly superstition, verse 5. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon 
Do not tread upon the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. See, in, in pagan idea, the threshold of the doorway into a structure is, is believed to be the border between kind and unkind spirits. But if nothing else, the response of the Philistines demonstrates their foolishness, their blindness. And we're going to see the same pattern in the next story in verses 6 through 12. Verse 6, Dagon has no hands, remember, but verse 6 tells us the hand of the Lord is still active. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is heavy against us and against Dagon, our God. Mixture of right and wrong here. The Philistines rightly understand that their affliction is coming from Yahweh, from the hand of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But they just see it as this struggle between regional gods. These two regional deities are going at it, and this God of Israel, we really don't know, he doesn't like to be in Philistia. He doesn't, or at least he doesn't like to be in this city. We'll try another city. Maybe we'll move him. Maybe he'll be more happy. So, verse 8, they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of, of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. Now, why Gath? We don't know. Maybe they believe the people of Gath were less uh, sinful than the people of Ashdod. Maybe they believe God would be happier in Gath. And instead of repenting, their response is, let's just push it on. Let's get it away. Let's move it away. And not surprisingly, the same thing happens in Gath. So they decide a third time to move it to a third city, Ekron. Only Ekron already heard what happened in Ashdod and Gath, and they say, we want nothing to do with it. Let's pick it up in verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it might not kill us and our people. For there was deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. And this goes on for seven months. Seven months following that symbolic defeat of the false god in his temple. The Philistines are struck dead as the hand of God is heavy upon them, bringing death and devastation and disease. And so they did everything they could to try to return the ark. At last, in chapter 6, they come up with a rather odd plan. They determine... Uh, They want to determine whether or not the ark was actually the source of the plague. So first they surmise, well, we can't return this God empty-handed, this this ark. We can't send it back empty-handed. They had some sense of an atonement or an appeasement of the gods. So they have this guilt offering, uh, chapter 6, verse 4. They have this guilt offering of five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. And there was some logic to that. Five lords, five entities, gold being uh, having value. The, the mice and the tumors were the very plague that they were experiencing. 
And they believed in verse 5 this would lighten Yahweh's hand from off of them, their gods, and their land. They knew about the judgments of Yahweh. They knew about Egypt. Look at verse 6. They say, for why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? So they're, they're thinking, we're not going to be like them. We're not going to be like those dense Egyptians. We're not going to make the same mistake. We won't harden our hearts like they harden their hearts. So they plan, we're going to send the ark out. And they send it out on a new cart along with golden tumors and mice. And they yoke it to two cows that had never been yoked before, but had recently given birth. Milk cows, cows with milk, ready to nurse their young. And they planned to send them out and see if the ark would then go over to Israel, return back to Israel. Uh, but they really weren't too keen on this idea. These were This was the spoil of war. They won this in the war. So they stacked the odds of the cows actually coming back. And they take the newborn calves of these two cows and they leave them in their own land, in the barn, at home, with them, with themselves, in their land. Thinking, surely, instinct of, the instinct of mama cow is going to be go, I'm going to return and nurse my young, right? It's funny, though they recognize the sin of Pharaoh's hardened hearts, their hearts were not very different. They said, we've got to return the ark, but you know what? Let's hedge it so that maybe we don't have to return the ark. It's just like Pharaoh. He decides, let my people go, and he changes his mind. We have the ark, let it go, but let's just see if it comes back. In fact, let's, let's, let's see if we can make it come back. They can always justify themselves, right? Well, we tried. Hey, we, we let the cows go, and they just came back. So they send them off, verse 9, and watch. And if the ark, it goes up on the way, to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he, Yahweh, who has done this great harm. In other words, if the ark goes back, it's, it's Yahweh, we'll just let it go. But if not, if the ark doesn't go to Israel, he says, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It's happening to us by coincidence. Well, the cows did what no normal milk cow would ever do. Ignoring their own calves, they merrily made a beeline to Beth Shemesh. Verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. God needs no helper. He owns the cattle. He once spoke through a donkey. And here he is now ordering the path of these cows. There is no natural explanation for what they did. Made a beeline to Beth Shemesh. Verse 12 concludes, The lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So, so like the Egyptians, who they said, we're not going to harden our hearts like them, they follow. They followed after them. But they had a little more sense then Egypt, they stopped at the border of the cities and they watched. They watched as Israel welcomed the ark back. The ark is back in our land. They're rejoicing. They take the wood of the ark and they burn it and they offer up the cows as a burnt offering. And the Levites come. 
The Levites were the only ones who were permitted to to move the ark, and likely they take the ark down carefully using the the poles that were uh, spoken about in Numbers chapter 4, that only the Kohathites, only the priests could move the ark. Now before we look at what happens next, I want to just pause and consider what we can learn from this story. A couple of things. First, regarding the Philistines' superstition, while we might expect a pagan religion to have superstition, to have a superstitious attitude, their attitude is not very different from that of the Israelites. Remember when we studied chapter 4, it goes back last year, but remember when we studied chapter 4, we saw how Israel treated the ark like a lucky charm, like a rabbit's foot. Remember that? And we're going to find this. Philistines doing the same thing as Israel. We're going to find this throughout 1 Samuel, that the sins of Israel are not much different from the sins of the surrounding pagan nations. So we can learn from this as Christians, that our sins as Christians are not necessarily much different from the sins of the Gentiles. Christians can serve the same idols, we just give it a different name. Secondly, we can learn how God reveals himself to people, unbelievers. Yahweh showed himself here to the pagan nations. He spoke to them. He showed them his power. These people saw how these cows merrily and resolutely go off to Israel. No natural explanation. And verse 16 says, the five lords of the Philistines, the leaders, saw it. They were a witness of God's power. God was speaking to them in the terms that they could understand. First, he knocks Dagon out, and now he's leading these cows. I mean, they should have bowed. This is a powerful God. What happened once these leaders went back and they reported? Was there revival in Philistia? I mean, who could not fear and glorify this powerful, living, sovereign, omnipotent God who has shown himself to us? Well, maybe a few Philistines, God opened up their eyes, but uh, they acted the way unbelievers act. More than likely, they went home, started to effect their repairs on this broken God, Dagon, put him back together again, Humpty Dumpty, They started to sell I Survived the Plague (laughs) t-shirts. Breathing, alas, glad that's over. Let's move on. And this is what sinners do. When trials come into their life, they return to their regular way of life. They don't learn from the trial. Seven months God was with them. Seven months they had God's presence afflicting them. Many are dead. Many suffered. That seven months were wasted for the nation as they just returned to their pagan ways. And that's how sinners act. Turmoil comes into their life. They start to ask good questions. They seem interested in God. They seem at times even contrite. But the trial passes and they're back to their old ways even boasting how they made it through the storm. Seven months of suffering did not convince them to turn to God. Instead, what's their solution? Get rid of the ark. Get rid of God's presence. And things are going to be all right. Give us our comfortable uh, superstition back. And they did. Maybe their fears were temporarily relieved. 
but their hearts were harder. See, every time you resist, you harden your heart. Matthew Henry wrote, Carnal hearts, when they're under the judgment of God, would rather, if it were possible, put him far from them than enter into a covenant communion with him. And that's the condition of fallen man. Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against godly ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, they're faced with the facts. They're shown clearly his eternal power, his divine nature. It's clearly perceived, Romans says. And even though they knew God, they do not honor him as God. They don't give thanks because they're revealing their, that their foolish hearts are darkened. And if there ever was a, a fool evidence of a foolish heart, the Philistines here, irrefutable evidence that Yahweh is real, They knew enough that they should try to make an effort to appease him, but they never sought to do it his way. And instead, their foolish hearts are darkened and they're led to do something really foolish like five golden tumors. How absurd. See, unbelief will try anything, any religion, any transcendental meditation or new age or superstition or like our sister said yesterday, it'll drive you, make you go all the way to India to try to, fall, try to find a false religion. Anything but God's way. And like the Philistines, so go all of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all, before we knew Christ, bolstered our own false belief systems reinterpreting the Bible, suppressing the truth, making it say what we want it to say. Meanwhile, God can, does, and will reveal himself. And he reveals himself to a pagan world, leaving them without excuse. And such is your condition if you're apart from Christ. You're without excuse. You've seen God work. You're pushing him away. That's the fate of the Philistines, and it's the fate of all who follow after that model of unbelief. But what of Israel now? What do they do with the ark? The Israelites at Beth Shemesh did better. It's hard to do worse than five golden tumors. What do they do? They offer sacrifices. They set up a stone memorial, and the Israelites live happily ever after. Well, not so fast. Israel's about to discover the severity of God. Look at verse 19. And he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, I just want to address a textual issue because some of you, when I was reading that, your version, depending on what you use, might have said 50,070 men were struck. And I just want to explain why and how that came about. The number 50,070 seems unlikely because it's actually more than the population of the city. And it's also unlikely that 50,000, over 50,000 men looked into the ark. The way the number is laid out in Hebrew 
It's not the way you normally would say 50,070. It literally says this in Hebrew. It says 70 men, kind of and, 50,000 men. 70 men and 50,000. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this 70 men out of 50,000. Whatever the case is, point is, this was a great blow to Israel. Especially as you think about, they thought the ark coming back, their nightmare was over. Finally, we have our ark back. We have our lucky rabbit's foot back. In their mind, it's all's well that ends well, right? But all did not. All was not well. In fact, the Israelites have more responsibility for keeping the holiness of the ark. After it was made, no one was permitted to touch the ark, let alone look into it. The priests were instructed to cover it with a veil. They were to insert poles so when it was to be moved. That's all, all those instructions are in Numbers chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Only the Levites from the family of Kohath can carry the ark by the poles. And more than likely, the Philistines, though, they looked into the ark. I mean, they didn't know. And they certainly didn't transport the ark according to the law. But realize the Philistines didn't have the law of God. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. But Israel knew better. Israel knew better than to look into that which God said is holy. And so, 70 were struck, and it was a great blow, considering how just a few hours earlier, they're celebrating and sacrificing and rejoicing, thinking our suffering is finally over. Seven months, it's finally over. It was a great disappointment. But the wages of sin is death. And the wages of sin is death for the Philistine or the Israelite. Romans 2, 9 and 11 say there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Romans 3, Paul stresses it. No one is righteous, neither Jew nor Greek. And by paralleling the sins of the nations with the sins of Israel, we're going to see this again next time when Israel wants a king like the nations. By paralleling these sins of the nations with the sins of Israel, the author of 1 Samuel is making that same point, that the sins of Israel and the sins of the Gentiles have a similar nature, lest we think we're better than they. Look at the response of the Israelites, verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's a good question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? God is holy, holy, holy. Even the angels had to cover their faces with their wings. They could not gaze into his holiness. Holy men like Moses and Isaiah were undone by a glimpse of his glory. So to ask the question, who is able to stand before this holy God is a good, excellent question. It recognizes the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. The prophet Malachi said the same thing. Who can stand when he appears? See, God's presence is powerful. It purifies by its very nature. God's holiness is contagious. And in the presence of God's holiness, people have one of two options. Either in the presence of God's holiness, people are going to be changed into the image of a holy God, 
or they're going to run away. That's it. That's the options. You're either going to be changed into this image of a holy God, or you're going to run away from his presence. And the Israelites at Beth Shemesh were no different, no different in their response than the Philistines. Who was able to stand before this holy God? Good question. But verse 20 continues. And to whom shall he go up away from us? Where are we going to send him? Bad question. We can't stand in the presence of this holy God. So rather than kneel or bow or lay prostrate before him in worship, rather than allow him to change us, let's get rid of him. Verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim. Kiriath-Jerim is about 15 miles north of where they are at Beth Shemesh. Send messengers there. The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it. Same thing the Philistines did. Maybe a little bit more respect. They were respectfully unrepentant, religiously unrepentant. So the priests from Kiriath-Jerim come down. They take the ark back up to their city, and it stays in Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years under the custody of the priestly family of Abinadab, specifically the son of Abinadab, Eleazar. And here is where the ark remains. It's, it's there throughout the book of 1 Samuel. won't come up again until King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, King David calls for the ark. And if you know your history, remember that fateful day when King David called for the ark for the return, and they, just like the Philistines, put it on a cart that's led by oxen, and as they bring it into the city, there's all this rejoicing that's going on, and it's immediately stifled because the ark became unstable, and Uzzah, Uzzah, who's a son or a grandson of Abinadab, touches the ark and dies instantly. And they learn, what every generation learns, that God's presence is holy. He carries glory, he carries awe. It's a fearful thing to be in God's presence. Back to our text from the exile in Philistia. The ark, God's presence, God's glory. Remember, I said when you hear ark, remember presence of God. Now, Israel puts it in storage. Reminds me of that final scene of Raiders. The U.S. government doesn't know what they have, and they just put the ark away in storage, in a warehouse. And for 20 years... 20 years, God's people could have had access to his presence, but they would not have it. It made them uncomfortable. In fact, God did more in exile for seven months than he did in Israel for 20 years. As the narrative continues now into chapter 7, Samuel comes back on the scene. Remember him? We left him in chapter 4. Eli died, and he's the guy that the book is named after, right? He's back. We left him off when Eli died and Ichabod was born. It was then that we learned that Samuel was going to be a prophet and a faithful priest. Now he's back in verse 3 of chapter 7. Here he comes, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth. From among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away their Baals and their Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only 
finally, after 20 years, 20 years of being under oppression of the Philistines, the Philistines occupying their cities for 20 years, the nation's prophet leader, Samuel, rises up now and he finally prevails upon the people to repent of their idolatry, put away your foreign gods. When they lost the ark in chapter 4, 20 years earlier to 20 and a half years earlier, Israel was filled with idolatry, darkness in the land, immorality right in the very holy place of God. Then their preparation for the battle was bring out the ark, bring out our lucky charm. But it's different this time. They learn something. Samuel, who significantly doesn't, his name doesn't even appear in all of the defeat of Israel, all those chapters about the defeat of Israel, Samuel's not mentioned. Now he comes back. And his first call is like the call of all of God's prophets, just like Elijah, just like Isaiah, just like Jonah, just like John the Baptist. It is to repent. Repentance was what was lacking. And that's what resulted in their captivity. That's what resulted in their loss. And through the great trial of these people, they finally got it and they put away their foreign gods after 20 years. I mean, if nothing else, doesn't this show us the patience of God? He's patient with his people. He'll wait for you. They had to put away their foreign gods because the nature of our faith is that it's exclusive. God will not share his glory with another. You can't serve God in mammon. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He was then, and he is now. Unless you are willing to repent, that is, allow his presence to change you, you will forever be pushing his presence away. That will be the characteristic of your lifestyle. Push him away. Some of you are doing that even at this moment. God's presence is making you uncomfortable. And you want to push him away. So you push him away in your church attendance. You don't fellowship with the people of God. You push him away by not reading your Bible. I don't want to hear from this God. It's convicting. It's uncomfortable. Or you push him away from fellowship while at the same time holding fast to your idol. And I don't need to name that idol because... You know what you're clinging to. For some, it's lust, greed, hatred, malice, envy, or anger. For others, it's ease or comfort or complacency. For others, despair or anxiety. For others, it's their jobs or their houses or their family or diet and exercise or your health or your looks or relationships. And for others, it's theology or even ministry. You are to serve Him only. Your passion, your devotion is indivisible. If Yahweh be God, serve Him wholeheartedly. If you prefer your idol, serve your idol wholeheartedly. But stop the one foot in and one foot out. Elijah challenged the people, how long will you waver between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And that's what I'm saying. Choose today who you will serve. True faith is exclusive. It is indivisible. 
And if you, if it is try, if you try to give it to two, it's going to be accepted by neither. You can't serve Yahweh and hold on to your casual God who makes you feel so comfortable thinking I'm going to go to heaven because I call this casual God Yahweh. I call this God Jesus. And I visit some resemblance of him in a so-called church once a week. Brother Lewis was praying last week at our corporate prayer meeting about the weak and unprepared church that's not going to be able to stand the shaking of God's presence when he comes in judgment. I asked him to, to share the words that he said. They, they, they struck me. It was basically about a church that only occasionally rises over some token concern, uh, something insignificant that affects their own comfort zones. And he expressed the viewpoint of the weak church praying something along these lines. Consenting adults can do whatever they want in private, just keep it off my Bud Light can and keep it out of my Sunday Super Bowl halftime show. It's kind of the philosophy of this casual God. Every now and then, when things get a little too difficult for us, tread on our ground, that's when we raise a concern. But, brothers and sisters, what will you do when he shakes away all of your props? When you have to rely on his hand and his hand alone, will your faith be strong enough to stand or will you run away? If we have his strength and victory, if God is going to revive us, we must cast away every idol. We must serve Yahweh with all of our hearts. We must yield to him wholly, completely. That's the secret of our Strength. That's the secret of revival and renewal coming to his people again. Moving on in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, Samuel calls this solemn assembly at Mizpah. Sacrifices are offered. The people are fasting and praying. Water is being poured out, a symbol of the pouring out of repentance. And the people corporately confess. Look at verse 6. Their confession. We have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against Yahweh. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we must recognize our sin. And when we do, confess it openly to God. The surest way that God will revive us personally and as a congregation, the surest way of renewal and restoration is the conquest of our sin by first confessing it to God. I I was just struck last week as we prayed together as a church, as we all prayed for revival, what a wonderful time when the body of Christ comes together praying for one thing. I was just so greatly blessed by it. If you, if you missed it, you really missed a, a blessed time. So many of the verses that were quoted um, in, in prayer about revival, it struck me how many, it didn't really hit me until we actually did it. It struck me how humility, repentance, These were the keys to God bringing revival. There's no revival without repentance. This was true in the early church. When Peter preached in Acts 3.19, repent, turn back, that times of refreshing may come. Repentance. The turn, what is repentance? Turning away from your sin and turning to God 
is the key to revival. It's not easy because it changes our lives. It changes what we're comfortable with. It's not easy in the short run. In the short run, the easiest thing for you to do in the short run is push God away. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read his word. Distance myself from Christ, the scripture, and the church. That's what the Philistines did. That's what Israel did at first. But now, 20 years later, after they learned their lesson, instead now, they come. But at first, Philistines and Israel alike, they uh, did not examine themselves. They did not, instead of searching their hearts, they said, away with God's presence. It's too holy, and we are too sinful. But 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, leaving no regret. Long-term, no regret. Short-term, yeah, it's easier. Long-term, no regret. Confession and repentance are not easy in the short run, but they are freeing, leaving no regret. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is one of continual repentance, regularly confessing our sins to God, despite what some dispensational uh, Bible churches practice and teach. You know, there are whole theological systems out there that deny the need for repentance. If you want to find a church where you'll be comfortable, just you can find one of them. They'll tell you repentance is no longer necessary. And they'll tickle your ear with these doctrines. They'll remove the personal responsibility that we have to do something that is uncomfortable. But don't believe that lie. Just as apostasy leads to judgment, repentance prepares us for the mercy of God and revival. Confession breaks the root of our sin. It frees us from the dreary expectation of sin's continual bondage. It grants us a confidence of forgiving and cleansing. John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So don't let your sin dictate your life. It's a ruthless taskmaster. Next, Israel's at Mizpah. Congregational prayer, fasting, repentance. Philistines hear about it. They think, oh, they're all together. They think they still have the upper hand. They take advantage and they attack Israel at this large gathering. Look at, pick it up in the middle of verse 7. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The Israelites were afraid, and we can understand. They're getting a a whiff of the previous terror that they had when these same people killed over 30,000 of their army. Only now, they don't say, they have the ark. They don't say, hey, let's get that ark down here. They don't rely on their superstition. Now, pray for us. They're afraid, but they're longing for God's help. And Samuel here acts as the priest and intercessor. He offers burnt offering and prayers which the Lord answers. Verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines draw near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound. And the day, uh, I'm sorry, that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. Verse 11, and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah 
and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. Samuel here, a prototype of Christ, the true and better Samuel, the true and faithful prophet and priest who is our one and only intercessor. God hears him. God hears the effectual prayer of Christ and he hears the prayer of Samuel here and he scatters the enemy in confusion. The victory is all of God. Israel, they just do the mop-up work. They pursue a confused foe. No ark, no lucky charm, just the intercession of God's people and an omnipotent God. Israel's victory was not dependent on their great army, nor was it on the taxpayer's money from a Western country. Samuel cried out to God. Samuel cried out to God, and God answered his people in the valley. He was on the hill praying, and God was answering in the valley. And oh, that we would learn this, brothers and sisters, the power of prayer, the power of intercession. We could pray for one another. We see it with Moses. We see it with Samuel here, but it reaches its perfection in the prevailing prayer of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Israel learned in the course of this story, they they learned their lesson. What began with an immoral, superstitiously believing people who believed in the power of a piece of furniture and were defeated as a result, now they believe in prayer. As the same Yahweh, the same one who led them into destruction, now leads them into victory. And all the while, the ark's in a warehouse. The judgment, though, of the lost ark cast a long shadow during this time of on Israel's worship. They were deprived of this central symbol of God's covenant with them. But it was a lesson that they had to learn as God's people. Remember, this is the twilight of spiritual awakening of the kingdom of Israel. This is the, the twilight kingdom, right? The sun, for the sun to come up on this kingdom, Israel could not believe in the magical power of a piece of furniture or any, even though this was their most important icon, they could not believe in its power. They had to learn to lean on the power of Yahweh. They're learning the central lesson of the book of Samuel and that God honors obedience rather than sacrifice. Right? That's a lesson that our next character comes up in Act 2, Chapter 8, King Saul. And he has to learn that the hard way as we're going to go through that act. What are the Philistines? Well, they're kept at bay all the days of Samuel. The cities that they had taken are restored to Israel. Israel's then at peace with their enemies. The ark is back on its home turf. And the glory is going to come back. Not quite yet, but it's going to come back. And Israel has their leader, Samuel. Leaps and bounds greater, better than Eli. Samuel. And that's where we'll pick up, uh, next time. But let me, let me close by looking at the end of the story in the latter half of chapter seven. After the nation's repentance and victory, Samuel sets up a monument, a stone of remembrance. And he names it Ebenezer. Literally, stone of help. Verse 12 in the King James Version says this, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Hitherto 
Meaning, till now, the Lord has helped us. Don't miss the importance of that hitherto. Don't miss the importance till now. Till now. Till, think what till now means. Till now means all of the time up to now. All of everything that happened to us till now. That includes chapter 4. That includes the devastation. That includes the losses. That includes the ark in exile. Yahweh's help came till now. Even in the darkest times. May their example be for you, brothers and sisters. May that renew your struggle with sin so that you might have confidence in the future. The future need not always copy the past. May this story give you hope for victory. Even in the fields of your former defeats, may this story give you hope for victory. That you can overcome temptations that have beset you in the past. Ebenezer means that no one can say, I've so often failed, I might as well give up the fight altogether. Ebenezer means, does not say to us, says that, that, that I'm destined to stay, stay a slave. Ebenezer tells you that you can, can, you can fight the good fight and God will give you the victory. Even when the dark comes crashing through, we have every reason for boundless hope in the possibility of victory. Not in ourselves, but through Christ. The grounds of our confidence lie that God's purpose and will is, as we've been hearing the last few weeks, to sanctify you, to holify you. Brethren, we must not go into this fight discouraged or downhearted because our God is undefeated. Where Israel failed miserably under the priesthood of Eli and his sons Ahophni and Phinehas, God takes upon himself to correct and completely change. That's the whole story from beginning to end. Israel's immorality and disobedience led to their defeat, it should have led to their exile, according to the Mosaic law. They were in such a wicked condition, they should have been exiled to Philistine, to Philistia. But what happens? God takes the exile upon himself. Yahweh, embodied in that ark, goes into exile on behalf of his people. He moves through the enemy territory, and he defeats the enemy from within. In seeming defeat, he brings victory. He returns to his unfaithful people. He comes back to those who have abandoned him. And what do they do? They exile him themselves. And then finally, he accomplishes the victory, the salvation for these unworthy people. That's the gospel according to the lost ark. In these chapters, the defeat of Yahweh is the means of victory for Israel. And so it is true for all of us in Christ. Every defeat will one day see set upon it a memorial stone called Ebenezer, stating not our victory, but his. Today, if you're here and you're or watching and you're not trusting in this sovereign, omnipotent God, I would invite you today to receive the free gift of eternal life. 
the scripture tells you you must be born again. And that is expressed in your repentance of sin and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I would invite you to do so. It's simply by, by receiving that free gift, repenting, turning away from your sin, and embracing faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who, while we were helpless, while we were lamenting, while we were sad and depressed, in this depressed condition, just like the Israelites, went into exile in our place, bearing the consequences that we deserve, going outside the camp to taste death for us, that he might conquer our arch-nemesis, death, by swallowing it up in victory, by rising from the grave, by conquering death in hell, disarming Satan, putting him to open shame. That Hebrews 2, that through death, his death on Calvary, the cross, his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were subject to its bondage. That's the story of the ark. The story of the ark is the story of Jesus Christ. As he walks out of the the tomb victoriously, and we walk out with him. The story carries us all from Ichabod, chapter 4, to Ebenezer, chapter 7. And that's the story of every every believer. If you're in Christ here, that's your story. Every Christian has gone from Ichabod, no glory, to Ebenezer, the Lord is, was, and always will be. Hitherto, my help. As God brought about great that great reversal in Israel, may He do so for us. May his glory and grace lead all of us to genuine, wholehearted repentance and faith that we would be truly free and restored as a people, living confidently for his glory. Amen.